my first kind of creative expression ever. And it's just kind of being rejected because people looked at what we were doing and they were like, this doesn't look like activewear. And so it was hard. And in those early days, like we were, we launched in the spring of 2015, we shipped the product to some different boutiques and some studios. And by the end of 2015, we were just about out of money. Hello and welcome to Secret Leaders. I'm Dan Murray-Serta and this is the podcast where you can learn from top entrepreneurs. Now, when Rich and I started this podcast in 2017, we didn't know where it would end up. We didn't even know if we'd do it for more than one season. So we made a few decisions in a hurry, including naming the company which makes this podcast. We chose Infamous Media. Now, that name has annoyed Will, our head of podcast, since he joined. So I'm pleased to say that we've now just changed the name. We are officially Kindling Media. Hope you like it. Now back to today's show. I'm talking to Joe Kudler, the founder and CEO of activewear brand Vuori, which he built into a $4 billion company and is launching in the UK this spring. Oh, now given my uh, recent living situation, I've been living in my mum's, in my mother-in-law's, and also for a lot of you that will have seen this, in a shed recording at times, haven't exactly had the best setup for recording podcasts, but I've been trying to get through it anyway. Now, this time my microphone actually cut out a bunch of times. So I've just re-recorded my questions and it should hopefully come out like a smooth interview anyway. Now, Joe's story is a classic tale of perseverance, but before all the sun, sea and sky high valuations, we have to go back to much more humble beginnings. I was always a really active guy. So I spent a lot of time doing things that I love outdoors, climbing mountains. I'm a big surfer, love to ride mountain bikes, ski in the winter. So super active person. But what occupied my most of my time was I had a like a financial and IT recruiting company that I started when I was in my 20s and ran with a couple of partners for almost 10 years. So, you know, I spent a lot of time doing a job that maybe I wasn't 100% um, in love with. I kind of grew up a person without a lot of money. I think it was really important to me in my earlier years to prove to myself that I could make a living, you know, that I could go out and, you know, I was like a, came from a family that had a very rich in love, not a lot of financial resources. And then we moved to one of the most affluent areas in Washington state little town called Bellevue, where Microsoft is from and a lot of other great companies originated. But I, so I always felt like, man, what would it be like to be like my friends who, whose families have money and we're going on vacations and they had stuff and all these things. So the first chapter of my life was almost spent like trying to prove to myself that I could make money. And so I was doing a job that is a company that I built. It was a wonderful company in a lot of respects. But yeah, maybe maybe going to work not 100% in love with what I would what I was doing, I would say, is what I was spending most of my time doing. You know, after I would say the first kind of call it 3 years were really exciting because we were building the business and and you know, in that kind of creation mode and that's just intoxicating no matter what you're doing. And then once the business kind of matured and we went we actually went into that kind of 2008 2009 kind of economic collapse and things became a lot harder and things just kind of normalized. And, and all of a sudden the business just like matured. Maybe then I came, came to terms with like actually what I was doing day to day. It was probably like a good five years that I was showing up every day, just feeling a little bit 
uncertain as to why I was doing it. And I've always been somebody that's, I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's a gift or a curse, but I see myself on my deathbed and I always am like coming to terms with that moment. Like, am I going to look back and feel like I'm, I went for it. Like, did I seize the day? Did I live a life in alignment with my passions, my heart, my interests? Like, or did I take the safe path? And that was something that I kind of grappled with and struggled with. And I just knew that I was going to have to make a, make a change. It was a scary realization. You know, it's kind of like when you're, you've been in a relationship for a long time with somebody, you've invested a lot of energy into it. And then all of a sudden you start having these thoughts in your mind, like, you know what, this person is actually probably not the right person for me. And all these things start bubbling up, like, and you start thinking about what that means and what it would mean to unwind it. And here I was in this place where I had built this great company. You know, we, we had a fantastic company. We had a couple hundred employees. We featured in the local business press as one of the fastest growing companies in the town. And, you know, we were getting a lot of acknowledgement and I was living a really great lifestyle. So I didn't really have a lot of things to complain about. And it's funny, like there was this side of me personally that wanted to express myself creatively. You know, I grew up playing sports, not ever nurturing a creative bone in my body, never was introduced to an art class or never took any design courses or anything along those lines. So for me, I didn't know if those, these feelings of wanting to lead a more creative life were misguided or, but, um, at that time for me, it just became about seeking clarity. Like I always say that like clarity is the ultimate currency. And I started going to yoga classes. I started like exploring meditation. I was changing my life a lot and the, the environment in which I put myself into quite a bit. And ultimately, like I, I got on this like obsession with clarity and trying to seek the answer to that exact question that you're posing. And that was a long journey for me. It took years, but ultimately that journey is what led me to Viore and the business that I am now running today. So Viore is, um, you know, it's a performance apparel brand for men and women. We launched in the spring of 2015 as a men's brand. We fall into the quote unquote athleisure category. I don't personally resonate with that word because I resonate more with performance. Our goal was, was really to build product that you could move and sweat in. And going back to the original seed that was planted, you know, I grew up playing sports, um, football and lacrosse. I played lacrosse in college and I beat up my body. I had a lot of back pain and a friend suggested I try yoga. And it was around this same time that I was seeking like this clarity in my life. And it just felt like it aligned well with what I needed. So I found myself in yoga studios a lot and I started paying attention to the clothing that I was wearing. And all I knew about activewear was the big mass brands that kind of defined the archetype of what activewear looked like, right? You think about the Nikes and the Adidas, like the big boys. And my observation here in the US was that they were over-distributed at mass market retail. A lot of places that, you know, my friends and I weren't shopping as frequently now that we're not playing competitive sports. And they were competing maybe a little bit more on cost instead of quality. And we would have never really known this had it not been for kind of Lululemon coming into the space and doing something really unique and special for women. 
and Lulu invested in better materials, better construction. And we were really inspired by that, especially as somebody who was practicing a lot of yoga. I was seeing this brand show up. It was really cool, but it was very much my wife's brand or our girlfriend's brand. It had a very feminine kind of undercurrent to it. And it just never felt like it was for me. Like when I went into their stores, it just didn't feel like they were catering to the male customer. It was kind of cast aside into the corner. And I know they've done a lot to change that perception over the years, but you know, at the time that was very much the sentiment. And so our vision for Viore was to build premium men's performance clothing that would blur the lines between traditional activewear and performance and everyday life. I didn't understand why the product that we were buying had to necessarily identify you as like man who's going to the gym or like man who's going to compete in a sport. We were from the beach, like we're from Southern California. You know, we're all surfers. We dress more casually here. And so we were looking to integrate these two worlds. Like how can we bring best in class performance and merge it with like effortless design and effortless wearability. And we kind of gave birth to this ethos of built to move in styled for life. And that's still really our guiding principle that we apply to every category that we go into. But that was the vision for the brand. It was to build an ultra wearable, ultra versatile men's athletic brand. And since, you know, the brand has evolved and grown into women's, women's today represents 50% of our business. But, but the original seed that was planted was really focused on product that we couldn't find that we wanted to wear as men. Joe managed to go from recruitment to activewear. He identified a gap in the market and went for it. But how did he bridge that gap? The first thing that I had to come to terms with was, was I going to jump in with two feet to make this happen? I, I actually really saw the opportunity. I knew that if we could build the product that aligned with the brand vision, we'd be successful. No matter how windy and weird of a road it might be, I knew we could do it but I didn't know exactly the steps to take. And so here I was like in these yoga classes, I met a guy named Chris Miller. Chris had started some, some action sports brands. He's a professional skateboarder um, and had had some success in consumer products. And Chris and I started talking about the idea for this brand together, but dating back to that time I'd mentioned, I worked in the fashion industry. I got this unique opportunity to model in Europe. So I was working for designers as a model and that gave me kind of a look behind the curtain, so to speak, at the fashion industry. I never resonated with being a model, but definitely loved watching these designers build product and bring it to life. And I think that I only mentioned that experience because I think it gave me a little bit of confidence that I've seen the industry, like I've seen how it works. I've seen how people build product and how they fit it and how they present it and how they market it. I felt like a little bit comfortable that I could do something in apparel. So going back to, you know, present day at the time, grappling with, am I going to jump in with two feet? It was a big question for me because I had started this business. It was successful. I was thinking about leaving to start an apparel company, which I liken to like telling your parents, like you're going to drop out of school to start a band. You know, it's like everybody around me in my inner circle was concerned for my well-being. They're like, Joe's going to leave this great company he's built to start a clothing company. Very high probability of failure. And, and those things were tough for me. And I had, I'd actually started a couple of smaller 
apparel brands out of the garage while I was working out in another place. And I was never able to jump in and cut the bow line and go to sea and just either like fight for my life and make it or, or not. It was like, I always had something to fall back on and those businesses never went anywhere. And so I saw this opportunity strongly. I was feeling like I needed to do something. And so I decided that I was going to take all the money I had saved. I was going to resign from the company I had built and I was going to spend a year writing a business plan and raising capital to actually do this quote unquote, the right way. And that was the decision I ultimately made. It was a very tough one, but I spent a year talking to anybody that I could talk to about raising money. I found that it was almost impossible to raise money for an apparel brand, for somebody that had no experience in apparel. It was very, very challenging. You know, you, you rewind back to this time, like 2012, 2013 is when I was having these conversations and the market was different. Now I feel like I see people starting businesses and they're raising money at a 15, $30 million pre-money valuation with no product, nothing. And, you know, at the time I just couldn't get people to write checks into this business. It was very, very difficult. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. I was able to finally convince some of my f- best friends, you know, to support me and, and write checks. And I, I put my, you know, personal money into it. I decided I had enough save that I could work for a couple years without paying myself, which I feel so blessed and fortunate to have been able to do. But that was kind of the, the jumping off point, if you will, was like getting that just a little bit of money. Like I wasn't able to go to a VC and get, 
$10 million or even $5 million. It was like, I raised $700,000 from mostly friends to go into market and, and start putting product together and get into R&D. It didn't get us very far. I was fortunate to have met a, a really talented designer who shared my vision for this category and space. And, you know, she was willing to work for, you know, some equity and very little kind of cash compensation. Same thing with my head of marketing, who's still with me today. She came on board at the time she was going through a change in her career, having a baby. And um, so it worked to have a more kind of flexible arrangement and not necessarily demand huge levels of compensation in the early days. And so we were able to put this little team of us. It was a head of marketing, a head of design and myself. And the real early days were spent on just like putting a brand strategy together, understanding like what we cared about, what this brand meant, what do we want it to mean to consumers? Like what is the promise of the brand? And then starting to develop product that aligns with that vision. You know, I, I think that to me, if there's one thing Viore has done well, it's like I still to this day can point to our first product and be like, that product is the ultimate physical manifestation of our brand vision and what we wanted to create. I think that alignment was really, really important. But our first year was spent talking a lot of pontificating on the marketplace and the customer and then spending a tremendous amount of time on sourcing and actually building our first samples. And, you know, once we got our samples made, I literally packed up a suitcase, went to New York City, and I started walking around to every gym and every yoga studio and asked to speak with their buyers. And then, you know, other, other boutiques as well. But I was just asking to speak to buyers. I just wanted to get people's take on the product. Like, so I was showing the line everywhere. And, you know, what's really funny is in those early days, I just got a lot of rejection, a lot of no's which I was used to from my days working as a model and then building a company in, in, in a kind of a biz dev role, I had become comfortable with rejection. So it wasn't the end of the world, but, but it was hard, especially in a creative life where, you know, you're, you're showing people your babies. Like these are, especially for me, my first kind of creative expression ever. And it's just kind of being rejected because people looked at what we were doing and they were like, this doesn't look like activewear. Like this looks like sportswear or swimwear, or, you know, we got a lot of descriptions, but, but not a lot of it was, was like, this looks like a new fresh take on activewear, which is what we were trying to do. And so it was hard. And in those early days, like we were, we were running out of money. So we launched in the spring of 2015, we shipped the product to some different boutiques and some studios. And by the end of 2015, we were just about out of money. And we hadn't necessarily defined an engine of growth, so to speak, that I could go back to the investment community and say, look at this like track record of success, like give me more money and I can get to from X to Y. I didn't have that necessarily beta established. And what I realized is that we had the business strategy wrong. And I think we had the brand strategy a little bit wrong as well. And so we started listening to our customers. We we're like, okay, we have an e-com business. Like, let's go out and talk to people and find out what they like about our product. And the first thing we learned is we had kind of approached the market initially as like a men's yoga brand, because, you know, that's really, that was really the original inspiration for the brand. And there was a lot of people practicing yoga in the U.S. I think it was like there were 30 million people practicing yoga in the U.S. and 20 or 30 percent of them were men and men was the fastest growing demographic in yoga participation. So we were like, 
there's nobody doing anything meaningful for men in a yoga studio. So that was our first kind of brand marketing and messaging was like men's yoga, a new take on men's yoga. And so we, we launched social advertising and campaigns around yoga and we listened to our customers and we were like, what are you using the product for? Because we were hearing from them that they loved the product. But when we tuned into what they were using it for, it was like, everything was above yoga. Like it was like chasing their dogs around, wearing them as pajamas, going to the gym, running, hiking. And like yoga was way down on the list. And, but people were like, but we love the product. So we felt like we didn't have the right market product fit. So that was the first thing. And then the second thing is that we were beating our head against the wall, trying to sell the brand into yoga studios and gyms. And we thought because we didn't have a lot of capital, there were other D to C brands that were launching with tremendous amount of capital to go out and acquire customers digitally. We thought that we could use like select wholesale relationships to help fund our D to C efforts. And, and it would be complementary to what we were doing online. And we learned quickly that it just wasn't, we weren't meaningful enough to the wholesale partners to have a real presence in their stores. It was kind of the product was getting lost amongst a sea of other brands and it looked very different. They didn't know where to merchandise it because it didn't look like the traditional activewear of, you know, our youth and the, what we grew up with and what existed at the time, it, it looked different. So we had all of these challenges stacked on top of each other. And the big pivot that made all of the difference in our business was that customer survey, we started changing the voice of the brand to speaking to versatility and not necessarily yoga, but we talked about running, training, hiking, traveling, chilling, like relaxing, and all of these different ways that people can use our product and the way the customer was telling us they were using the product. So we, start, we changed our marketing message and then we decided to take all the money we had left and go 100% all in on a direct consumer business and spend all our energy trying to find our customer because we knew that if we were going to build this in alignment with our vision, we had to do it direct to the consumer. We couldn't rely on a wholesale partner to tell our story. And when we did that and we got laser focused on the customer and the digital experience, we started seeing results. And initially we would put a dollar into the advertising you know, machine and we would get a dollar of sales, right? So we were giving away product for free, but we were acquiring customers. Before you know it, we were investing a dollar and we were getting $2 back. And then before you know it, we were getting a three to one return, then a four to one. And we all of a sudden had this engine of growth. We could go back and show investors, look at this data. Like look at what these the customers are saying about our brand. These are the changes we've made. And we were able to get another tranche of capital. That second tranche of capital was the last capital we, we ever needed to build the business we have today. Fiori raised another $1.5 million on a $6 million valuation. Now flash forward to October 2021, and they raised $400 million at a $4 billion valuation, literally in their next round. I wanted to know all those details, of course. So it was a very unique transaction. You know, the company raised $400 million. It was, it was all secondary. So it was actually used to buy shares. The company is in a fortunate position that it doesn't need capital to fund its growth. The company generates a lot of free cash flow from profitability. And so we weren't actually looking to raise money, but we ended up selling 10% of the business of existing shares um, 
to SoftBank. And it came about really organically. One of our board members, um, who's one of my best friends, is on another board with uh, a guy who knows the the gentleman um, who leads SoftBank's consumer practice, and he happens to live here in San Diego. And so I was introduced to um, him. His name's Nagaraj. It was really intended to be a casual get to know you breakfast with no no real intention of of doing anything. You know, Viore was not actively pursuing a round. We didn't have a deck put together. So there really wasn't a pitch. The pitch was actually that we don't need money and that we're not we're not looking to do anything. And, you know, I've always had a slight aversion to private equity. And I, I think it goes back to what we were talking about. My first chapter of my life was about pursuing, you know, wealth, material possessions. And this chapter is much more about an alignment with my heart and the things that I love. And Viore is really an extension of all those things. So I've been very conscious about who I bring into the fold because I never want to get on a clock with this business. Like I want to be here and build something that my kids could come and work at in 20, 30 years. So I have a very long-term mindset with Viore. So I've been just a little hesitant to bring in the wrong investors. But you know what was what struck me about SoftBank was like we were very much aligned from a value standpoint. Like they were very long-term oriented. They literally um, had the perspective of, look, we like to back entrepreneurs with bold visions. We want to back market-leading companies. It felt like they were willing to make this a really easy process to get involved. And as we look to expand the business overseas, we felt like they could be a really helpful partner. But you know, whether you're bringing on an investor or a member of your leadership team or somebody on your board of directors, like to me, it's all about alignment. And I just felt really good about the people that I met there. So we decided to do something and it's turned out to be a really great partnership, albeit it's still early, but they've already been helpful. And yeah, we're thrilled to have them on board. Joe thinks this deal helped put Fiori on the map, but he also said this investment was a secondary one. So what does that mean? And did he manage to take any money off the table for himself? I did. I was able to take a piece of secondary. So primary capital is money that goes on the balance sheet, right? So when you're in the early days, you know, you're raising money because the company needs money. So the company puts the money on the balance sheet, uses it to fund growth. When you're a larger company and you don't necessarily need the money, but people still want to invest. So the investor wants ownership in your business, but you don't need the capital for growth. One viable option is to do a secondary transaction. So essentially, they buy shares from stockholders. So the money goes to the stockholders of the company, the management of the company. And there's a, a number of ways to structure that. But in our case, we did a pro rata transaction. It was a really, really simple, clean transaction. And so, yes, I, I was able to take some money off of the table. And it's life changing for me. It's life changing for my family. But at the same time, I don't know, like not a lot has changed, you know, like it's been a, a few months since we've closed this transaction and I'm still driving the same car I was driving before, still living in the same place. You know, I've made some different investments and, you know, I'm trying to get really clear with like what, what I want the give back component of my life to look like. But, you know, we have young daughters. And so my wife and I both, you know, my wife grew up in Lake Tahoe in the mountains I grew up in a small rural town and we both cherished the way we grew up and believe that 
it shaped the people that we are. And so we, we're really conscientious about how we show the that aspect of our lives to our children. Once you have littles in your family, you know, you, you have an obligation to raise good people and not to say you can't do that with material wealth. I, I, that's not what I'm saying. I know a lot of amazing people that grew up with a lot of wealth in their family. But I just think you just have to be really careful and, and conscientious. And so we haven't really rushed out to, to do anything with the money. We're being patient and let it settle in. And, and then, you know, we'll go from there. So Joe has a profitable business, some cash in the bank and a clear vision for where he wants Viore to go. But I had to know what's missing from this picture. For me, like the, the battle that I've been fighting for a while now has been just being present with my kids and my family in the midst of so much happening. Like I feel like I'm, I'm living everything that I was hoping that I would get to experience in my life from a professional standpoint. Like my dreams have come true. We have incredible resources. We have the opportunity to do so many wonderful things. And in a lot of respects, we're just on the beginning of this incredible journey. So I'm excited and, and I'm not great at balance. And it's funny because a lot of people, you know, work-life balance is something a lot of people talk about these days. And I look, I love life. Like I, I love to surf and mountain bike and hike and get outside. And, and I'm very curious. Like I want to explore a million different things. I, I want to be able to invest the time to follow my curiosities. But I also have these incredible little angels at home, these little moldable, shapeable children. And I want to be there for them. I want to be present to all of this incredible like blessing that has fallen upon our family. But it's hard, you know, because on one hand, it's like I want to continue nurturing this baby and growing it. And I really am. I'm convinced. One thing I know for certain is that I want to be the person to steer. Like people could be like, well, go hire a president or just take a creative role. Like for me, no, like this has always been my vision. It's been my baby. And it's really important to me that I continue on this path. It feels like I need to be here on this path for, for the years to come. And, and so how do I continue to be present to the needs of the business, also present to the needs of my family and my children? And gratitude is such an interesting word. And, you know, in yoga, people have gratitude journals or they, they use affirmations or, you know, there's a lot of things that little tips and tricks and like, how do you live a life of gratitude? And I actually was just in Hawaii last week for my mom's 70th and the family got into a conversation about gratitude. What does it mean to live a life of gratitude? And one of the points that was brought up because somebody was actually reading a book on this exact subject was like, gratitude is not it's not just telling somebody you're grateful for them. It's not writing in a journal or an affirmation, but gratitude is really just generosity. And people that are actually grateful are people that are generous. Like if gratitude is a, a noun, like generosity is the verb, right? Like that's how it's expressed. And that was like a, a head scratcher for me because like I, I want to be grateful. And sometimes I feel like life is moving so fast that I'm having a hard time slowing down, being present for the needs of my family, my children, and also just being grateful. It's like, how do I pinch myself and realize like, Hey, enjoy this moment. Like this might be the pinnacle of your life, young, incredible family, thriving business, so much growth all around. 
but how, how am I present and grateful to it through all of it? So I don't wake up in 20 years going like that was a speed blur. Continuing on this theme, I wanted to find out about the biggest limitation Joe's felt working on his business. I'm not a, like an ultra organized person. I think vision, sales, marketing, like enlisting people in the vision is a strength. But as the business has gotten a lot more complex, it's another thing that keeps me up at night. And something I'm thinking a lot about right now, as a matter of fact, I'm reading a book called First Break All the Rules, which is a book about management. Because, you know, our company has, I think, 550 employees now and building culture and alignment and communication in, in, an, in the early days was like, you know, we were all in this tiny little office and it was like, lift your head up from your computer, make an announcement. It's like companies aligned, you know, everybody gets it. As you move farther and farther away from that kind of nucleus with hundreds of employees and different levels of within the organization, like how do you continue to build culture? Like it's so important to us. We've always been deeply committed to a value system, if you will. And and we really do believe that our people and our culture is a big part of our, the reason why we're successful. And, you know, it might be a little foo-foo, but I really believe that, you know, the experience that a customer has when they buy your product and they wear it, or they go into your store, that feeling they get, which is your brand, is a direct reflection of the people and the synchronicity, the harmony that you have within the four walls of your organization. And so my strength, to get back to your question, like I am not a great organizational leader in terms of calendarization, performance reviews, building the, the, the communication infrastructure within the organization. And as we've gotten a lot bigger, that's something that I'm spending a lot of time learning And one of the things I'm learning is that potentially it's going to be, we're going to be better served if we identified the right kind of COO and right operating partners to be that so that I can stay focused on brand and vision and product and, you know, really pro, I mean, I spend most of my time with the product organization and I think that's just where my heart is. And that's where I'm in best service to the organization coming to terms with that. So I I don't have the exact right path in terms of how it will all work out. But I definitely see that that is an area that I need to continue to invest in and grow professionally. As we began to wrap the interview up, I wanted to know about the biggest mistake in the company's journey so far. Oh, man, this is a hard one for me. Because like, it's not that we haven't had mistakes, we've had millions of of small mistakes. It's just we haven't had like the big one that I would actually call out. I've always felt like we've had this little angel on our shoulder and things in the moment that seemed like defeat or a mistake. When I look back over the last couple of years, I'm like, gosh, that worked out exactly how it was supposed to have worked out. You know, investors that we fumbled and ultimately didn't land that I thought was going to be catastrophic to the business. I look back now and I'm like, gosh, that just would have been more dilutive. And that personality never would have worked for where the company ultimately went, like different vision or different alignment. You know, we've made some hires that didn't ultimately work out that set the business back a little bit, but nothing Nothing that ultimately I would point to, like, I I really don't feel like, and maybe it's just my brain. I don't think in terms of mistakes, but like everything that hasn't worked out the way we had hoped has kind of turned out to be a blessing. And that's why people look at our business now and they're like, 
how did you guys raise two and a half million dollars and build such a profitable, fast growing business? And with this like harmony in your management team and the right investors. And I look back and I'm like, because we had an angel on our shoulder, like it wasn't all intentional. Like these weren't all like calculated decisions. Like we, but, but we, we made the right decisions that were, that, that were right at the time. We kept moving in the right direction. We kept building momentum through adversity but I, it, it wasn't perfectly orchestrated. So I look at a lot of those challenges and obstacles as blessings. And so it's a hard question for me to answer. So failures into blessings, not a bad way to look at things. But what was the most important piece of feedback that Joe's received with his business? Well, I think going back to the organizational piece, you know, it's not all self-awareness. You know, it's definitely feedback that I've been given as well. So I would just say that it's the organization is growing. It's making being bold enough to make the big investments. I've never built a business that's scaled to this size and on the growth trajectory that we're on. So this is new territory for me. And so in the early days, I really struggled with the idea of bringing in people that were better than me and that were more talented and had been there before. I think I was defensive and felt like, gosh, well, if they're better than me, then this becomes their company. Then they become the emotional leaders of the business. But the truth of the matter is by paying attention to that feedback, right? And acknowledging that I was limiting like the business by, by having such a limiting view you know, having that awareness and bringing in these talented people, it's been transformative. And if anything, all it's done is lifted me as a leader and, and helped me continue to grow. And I've felt supported and I've been able to continue looking forward and really being a true CEO. You know, in the early days, you're the janitor, you're the accountant, you're the salesperson, you're the mark, you're everything. But these incredibly talented people that we've been able to bring into the organization that are so much better than I am at their given area and discipline of the business has allowed me to to really grow into a CEO role. I, I would just say that that would be the feedback that I received, especially in the early days. And finally, I wanted to know what advice Joe would give people at the beginning of their entrepreneurial journey. What would he tell them? I would just say, listen to your intuition, develop a clarity practice or an awareness practice because life will come at you very fast when you get into an entrepreneur's seat. I think clarity is the ultimate currency. And I do think it's really critical you take the time to stay clear, which means whether it's meditation or yoga or breath work or going for long walks by yourself, whatever it takes, seek clarity and then just listen to your own intuition because everybody's going to tell you how to build your business don't listen to them. Listen to what feels right for you, and that will define your success. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips, and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. I'm Dan Murray-Serta, and I was the host of this episode. Editing was done by Lower Street Media with Will Stolomon, our head of podcast, Bring It All Together.